Hello, and thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene, where we exist to help people take their next step in a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that as you listen, you are both encouraged and challenged as you take that next step in your walk with Christ. My name, for those of you who don't know me, for those of you who are new, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are continuing in our series, the second week of the Daniel Dilemma. And I know that for many of you, when you hear the Daniel Dilemma, how to stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise, many of us, we get excited. We think to ourselves, all right, they're going to be coming after the culture. They're going to be telling us everything that's going wrong in the world. And we're going to be affirmed in, in all of our thoughts and everything that we're thinking. That if we could just get back to a world of morality. If we could just get back to the way things were 50 years ago. And many of us, we come in thinking, yeah, they're going to. And if I were being honest, that would have been a lot easier to do. I wouldn't be so nervous right now. Because in the last couple of years, I know what it takes to get applause from this congregation. I know what it takes to get amens from this congregation. Amen. See, it works. And I also know what makes us uncomfortable. I also know what it takes that when we leave these doors and life groups happen where the discussions begin to get a little bit uncomfortable. And it would be a lot easier for me to get up here and give the message that all of you could applaud and give the message that all of you could amen and we're gonna go against culture, we're gonna attack culture, and we're gonna go back and win our world back against the culture. But as I walk through scripture, and you guys all pay me to be broken down by scripture, to be broken down by the spirit, to then come share with you all what the Lord did and has been doing. I have a feeling that maybe this is one of those days where I'm not gonna get many amens or much applause. Because the Daniel dilemma isn't about how we come and fight back to win back our world, our culture. Because from what I can see, and maybe there's some of you who see differently than me and we can talk later. From what I can see, it's not what Jesus did. Now, I'm not saying that we compromise our morals. I'm not saying that we compromise our truth. This is about standing firm and loving well. And sometimes we can be so stuck in protecting our standards and protecting our truth that we forget what it is to actually love well. You know, when I went to seminary, many of you know that I left the world of engineering to pursue vocational ministry. And many of you might think, well, man, the Lord must have done a work on your life for you to leave engineering, to enter into ministry. And you would think that I went to seminary empty and ready to learn and just, just full of nothing, just ready to soak it all in. I was humbled by the working of the Lord. And to a certain degree, I was. 
But then on the flip side, I also wasn't. You see, leaving the world of engineering, it leaves a lot of room for a lot of pride. Here I am. I left the secure world of engineering, making good money, doing all the things that everyone thinks is successful in this world. And I left it because I'm that good. See, I knew you'd laugh. A lot of pride comes along with that. And as I got to seminary, I, I didn't know anybody and I was, I was very interested in gaining friends. And one of these buddies that I became acquainted with, I started to realize, wait a minute, you and I, we are not the same. Here, I thought that going to seminary, everyone was gonna be the same, same morals, same way of thinking. We were gonna talk the same, dress the same. Everything was gonna be the same. And I get this one guy and he is not the same as me. And it was a little uncomfortable for me. Made me squirm because he would say things. And he would do things. And sooner rather than later, I began calling him out. Like, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And I was not nearly as gracious as I'm coming across now. And I began calling him out. And before I know, I, I really don't want anything to do with him. And I, I eventually find friends that look like me, talk like me, think like me. They, they uh, do all the same things as me. And I decide I'm going to go over with these guys. Forget about him. And I essentially just toss that friendship to the wayside. Well, before I know it, a year goes by. And this buddy that I had first become friends with, he comes to me. He's like, hey, I would like to talk to you. And we go to a coffee shop and we meet up and he's talking and he's calling me out for what I had done. I had found the buddies that looked like me, talked like me, and they affirmed me and I tossed him to the wayside. And he was looking for me to apologize and to reconcile. And I didn't. And in that moment, he looks at me and he says, you have issues in your life that if you do not deal with them will affect your ministry. And he said, you don't have anyone in your life who loves you enough to call you out on those, on those issues. And I'm not going to do it either. Whew. Those are some piercing words from a fellow Christian. Now you would think that after hearing those words, I would have left repentant. I would have had a contrite heart wanting him to reconcile and bring forth reconciliation. How can anybody say that about like, what, in the, is this true? And Nope. You see, I had found the friends that did like me, that did affirm me, that thought like me, talked like me. I went right to them and they affirmed me and I got defensive and I got angry and I had nothing to do with him. And I just tossed it to the side. You know, friends, in the culture that we are in today, we look at people who are different than us and we immediately think they're dirty, they're dangerous, they're provocative in a way that's going to distract us from God. So often we come to church and we sing these amazing songs and we say amen to the points that hit us strongly and we think of all these people that are different than us and we think, man, they should be here right now. They should hear this sermon. They should sing this song. And if they hear this sermon, if they sing the song, then they would start looking like us because we make all the right decisions. 
And all the while, as we wish that they could be more and more like us, we refuse to enter into their lives. We refuse to demonstrate to them what Christ has already done for us. Friends, the question we have to ask ourselves, how do we stand firm? How do we protect our truths, our standards, and love well? So often we, we protect our truth and we protect our standards, we protect our morality, all saying that, well, this will get them thinking. We'll get them to think. I'll post this little comment on Facebook. I'll get them thinking. You know, I'm not going to associate with them because my disassociation with them is going to get them thinking about their actions. We think about how we want them to become more like us and we completely forget what it is to love well or even to look to see how Jesus loved well. Last week, Dave walked us through the beginning of Daniel showing us that the beginning of standing firm and loving well is us leading in grace and truth. How when we lead in grace and truth, we all of a sudden became, become mediators of love while immersed in a culture that has compromised standards. When we begin walking through the book of Daniel, we begin to understand what Christ meant to be in the world, but not of it. And yet what's ironic is that so often in our attempts to not be of the world, we completely separate ourselves from the world. Did you know that at one point in time in Jesus's ministries, he actually says, leave them here. Leave them in the world so that they could see my father's goodness. Jesus didn't want us to be separated from the world. He wanted us to be in the world, in the culture, the culture that hated him and killed him. Did you know that? And yet we spend the majority of our time thinking about ways how we can escape the world. How we can escape the culture. How we can just at least disassociate from them so that maybe they can start thinking and maybe we can just live our peaceful, moral lives. As we dive into Daniel, Daniel 4 today, we begin to see that in our attempts to protect our own truth, we not only compromise Christ's truth, but we compromise his love. In order to protect our own truth, our image, what we believe is right, in order to protect all of that, we compromise Christ's truth and his love and his witness to the world. So I would invite you, join me in chapter four of Daniel today. Now, there's no judgment. If you have to look in the table of contents for Daniel, there's no judgment. It's this tiny little book over there in, in the Old Testament. I always tell the kids, hey, open up one particular way and start turning. And if you reach Psalms, you turned too far one way. And if you reach Matthew, then you turn too far the other way. Daniel chapter four. This is where we begin. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Man, we're off to a good start. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the pagan world, king of the people who brought the Israelites, God's chosen people, into exile. Wow, we're off to a good start. Verse three. How great are his signs. 
how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Wow. The king of the pagan world, the king over all this world, he is singing the praises and the majesty and the glory of God. This is fantastic. If only we could live in that same culture, right? But just wait. Because yes, King Nebuchadnezzar is singing the praises of Yahweh, the one true God. But he also just saw what Ben is gonna preach on next week. He just saw three men enter and leave a burning fiery furnace. I'd be praising the God too that did that. But if we go on to verse four, here's where it starts getting a bit more truthful, if you will. Verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Friends, he just spent these three verses, the first three verses of chapter four, praising the almighty El Shaddai, Yahweh, God, the one true God. And then in a matter of a second, he flips over, I am in my palace at ease and prospering. Yes, he praised God. But this praising was simply a glance at God only to come right back down into the mirror, looking at himself and says, who is the most worthy of them all? And King Nebuchadnezzar in this moment reveals his true heart. He's not focused on worshiping God. Yeah, he gave God the praise, but he comes right back down to himself, looking at me. And this is where things get really interesting. He then goes on to say, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make it known to me, its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. King Nebuchadnezzar watches something amazing happen and for a brief moment sings the praises of Yahweh, God, El Shaddai, the one who deserves all the praise and glory, the creator of the universe. But when things start getting a little uncomfortable for him, he had a dream, people. He's sitting in, prospering in his palace, and he had a bad dream. And in this bad dream, he then decides that he, instead of relying on the God he just got done praising, he's going to call in all of his people, the magicians, the astrologers, those who work on behalf of his gods. King Nebuchadnezzar isn't trusting God. He's singing praises to God, certainly. But he's not trusting God, we see this even as he brings Daniel in. He's not bringing Daniel in because he's trusting in Yahweh. He knows something special with Daniel. He's done it before, Daniel interpreted a dream. He's done it before in how he walked through these times and, and confusing matters. So I'm gonna bring him back in. 
because he's named Belteshazzar. He's named after my God. And, and in him is the spirit of the holy gods. King Nebuchadnezzar praises and yet he is so filled with pride that he still thinks that all of his things are gonna give him the answer to what makes him uncomfortable. He's just simply covering his basis. He praises God when everything goes okay, but then sits in the comfort of his palace, worshiping his own little gods and putting his trust in them. He praised, but his praise was full of pride. When I went to seminary, I praised God. I was never more thankful for God giving me the calling to enter into ministry, to leave the world of engineering, to enter into vocational ministry. And I praise God providing a, for providing a way down to Dallas of all places, for providing amazing friends and people that came around me and loved on me. It was the best community I have ever had in my entire life. I praised God. But I was praising God from a place of comfort. I was praising God from a place of pride. I was so proud. I was so proud of what God had done. I was so proud of my decision to leave engineering, to come to ministry. I was so proud. I praised God, but I never actually allowed God to do a work in me so that when someone who was different than me, might, who desired a friendship with me, that I might actually pursue that. God had done enough work in my life to get me to seminary and I prevented him from doing a work in my life so that I could look at this individual with the eyes of Jesus Christ. I looked at him with my own eyes and compared him against myself, thinking, well, he's not like me. He's making the wrong decisions. I praised God and I stayed in my high palace of comfort without ever getting close to those who were different. I'm placed judgment calls. If he wrestled in seminary, if he wrestled in his faith, it's not because he wasn't finding Jesus, it's because he wasn't like me. If simply he was living the moral lifestyle that I was living, then clearly he wouldn't have any troubles. And friends, this was with a brother of Christ who also wanted to discover the goodness of God in his life so that he might proclaim the goodness of God to the rest of the world. And he looked a little different than me. And I said, I want nothing to do with you. And then it begs the question, how much more so do we praise God and yet distance ourselves from the rest of culture who don't even claim to know Jesus Christ? Yeah, I admit it, the culture around us, it's going further and further from the moralistic lifestyle that many of us as American Christians are used to. But did God really call us to live in a moralistic culture, to proclaim his goodness to a moralistic culture, just so that we could be happier with where we live? You see, in the same way that King Nebuchadnezzar praised Yahweh, but hung on to his other gods, we also, we praise God on Sunday mornings and hang on to our God of morality and human logic. Friends, don't we see that it was the moralistic culture that is what isolated us to begin with from the culture around us? 
that if we lived into our own morality, then maybe, just maybe, we can get these people thinking. But we're going to do so, draw a line in the sand. We're not going to associate with anybody on this side of things. We're not going to see them as the people that God sent us to. So we draw the line in the sand and we're going to live our moral lives over here and never enter into the culture where the people are that God sent us to. God didn't tell us to love the culture. He told us to love the people who are in the culture. But we hang on to our moralistic God saying, I'm making the right decision. They need to be more like me rather than us saying, I need to be more like Jesus. We're so consumed with them looking like us that we forget what it is to actually look like Jesus in the world around us. I did this with a brother of Christ. How much more so do we do it with those who don't even claim Christ? How do we stand firm and love well? First and foremost, we must watch that our praise is not full of pride. Lest we become like the king of Babylon himself. Lest we become more like the culture around us than the others of Jesus. You see, what happens is when we claim to have a witness of Jesus Christ on our lives and we've drawn this line and we get up in our palaces of comfort over here, the people down there, they see us singing praises and yelling amen, but they never actually encounter Jesus. All they know about Jesus is that we over here in our palaces of comfort singing his praises. And they never actually get to experience what it is to walk with him. And so we're going to continue. We're going to find out. I'm not going to go all the way into Daniel chapter 4. But as Daniel or as uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, tells Daniel about this dream, this dream includes a big tree that grows super, super big. It covers the entire earth and it's giving shade and protection. And it's, it seems to be this good thing. And then a messenger from God in this dream says, cut it down, but don't remove the roots or the base of it. Cut the tree down. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's scared and he tells Daniel this. And Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, uh, king, don't be upset with me. You can tell Daniel's a little bit hesitant, like, ah, this is going to be bad news. And the king's like, hey, just tell me, what is it? Daniel says, king, this is you. You have grown so large. You've grown so mighty and so powerful, but there is a time that is coming, that the Lord will strike you down to humble you for a period of time. Because King, you are walking in pride. You are not doing the things of God. You are not praising God. In the same way that my friend looked at me and says, hey, you have issues in your life that if you do not deal with them, they will affect your ministry. Daniel's playing the role of this friend saying, hey King, you and I were good. I'm just letting you know that if things don't change, something's going to happen. So we jump to verse 27 then. Verse 27 of Daniel chapter 4. And this is the end of Daniel giving his interpretation to the king. It says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Yes, he praised God to all the world. But he wasn't even practicing righteousness. He, in his comfort of 
of his palace. He, he, he didn't ever associate himself with any of his people. Daniel's like, King, you're praising God, but you don't even show mercy to the people. You don't even see the heart of God in wanting to lead this people back to God because his pride blinded him from seeing the heart of God. In the same way that our pride, our moralistic pride, our pride of doing everything right all the time keeps us focused on our gods of morality and logic and it keeps us blinded from seeing the true heart of God. And we, by trying to protect our own truth, have compromised our truth, our witness, our message. We have compromised the love of Christ. Because we have hung, we have clung to our little gods of morality and human logic, what makes sense. And when we continue then, Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, it was 12 months, it was a year. Daniel gives the warning. A year later, king, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He clearly didn't get the warning Daniel was giving. In the same way, I didn't get the warning that my friend was giving me. Yeah, my friend, he may not have had the best of intentions. And yeah, he probably could have worded it in a more loving way. But King Nebuchadnezzar was so blinded by his pride that even after 12 months, he's more proud than ever. His witness has been fully corrupted. The praise that he was offering God, not just a chapter earlier, a few verses before, all of that has been corrupted. Because what good is it if someone's gonna praise God but never actually do the things of God? What good is it if we say amen to the things of God but never actually interact with the people that God wants us to love on? He praised God, but that praise was corrupted because he was never actually fulfilling the heart of God. This only does injustice to the love of God. If you and I, if we choose to stay in our high palaces of praise and morality and not interact with those around us, God will move on from using us. If we simply say God is good and never show the goodness of God, our witness becomes corrupt. If all we're focused on is trying to make people like us because they make us uncomfortable, then we are no different than the king of Babylon. We're no different than the pagan culture that we are trying to avoid. I tried to make my friend more like me. I wasn't patient, I wasn't gracious, and I didn't love him. I was demeaning, I was judgmental, and I was simply wrong. He knew that I didn't agree with him. He knew that his actions made me feel a little squirmy. He knew that him and I were going to be different in the way we thought and the way we looked and the way we did things. And yet he still desired a friendship. It wasn't he that pushed me away. It was me that pushed him away. And friends, we do that in our culture today. We get a little squirmy. We get a little uncomfortable. We refuse because someone makes us think 
that they're gonna try to convert us or, or bring us along with them. And so we avoid them at all costs. But friends, think about this for a second. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If it's difficult for us to see them through the eyes of Christ, it's impossible for them to see us in the love of Christ. If it's difficult for us to see them in a loving way, think about how much more difficult those who don't have the power of God Think about how difficult it is for them to see us in a loving way. It's not their responsibility to meet us where we're at. It's our responsibility to meet them where they're at and to demonstrate and to speak over them and to love on them in the way that God is. We don't have to corrupt ourselves. We don't have to compromise our standards. But we learn to stand firm when we empty ourselves of pride in order to love well like Jesus did. Nebuchadnezzar refused to recognize his pride. Nebuchadnezzar refused to be with his people for the sake of God's goodness. He praised, but he didn't lead others to praise. He oppressed others all in the name of praising God in the comfort of his palace. So often we are King Nebuchadnezzar, praising God with no real heart change for the world around us. Friends, I would like to take us to Philippians. Philippians chapter two. Where all of a sudden we see the more perfect king. The true king. The one that we are all called to emulate. Someone other than King Nebuchadnezzar as our example. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse three. Philippians two, starting in verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ is the true and perfect king. But friends, he didn't come to bring morality to the world. He came to bring himself so that others would find him. Christ praised God, but he never kept his hands so far high up that they were never down to the ground to bring others with him. He came to a culture that wanted to kill him and he knew it. He knew that everybody wanted to kill him and yet he still immersed himself in the culture. He told us and showed us what it was to lead with grace and be mediators of love, all the while standing firm on the foundation of God's truth. Nebuchadnezzar did not make God his everything. And he fell. His pride filled him to the brim instead of God's goodness filling him to the brim. His pride, friends, was the end of his praise. But Christ, when we become 
more like Christ, when Christ becomes our everything, when Christ begins to become every part of who we are and every part of our motivation, we begin to love like Christ and stand with Christ. When Christ is our everything, we are emptied like Christ was emptied. When Christ is our everything, the world sees Christ without seeing us. When Christ is our everything, we begin to see the world in the same way that Christ saw the world. That those who were sinners, those who were different, those who needed the love of Jesus, he approached them with the love of Jesus. Christ modeled this for us. Without compromising anything, We say we want to protect our children. Yes and amen. Let's protect our children. We want to build them up on the morality that we know to be part of God's truth. Yes and amen. But let us not build them up on the morality of God's truth. All the while we come over here and we denigrate anybody who stands different than us. What does that teach our children about the love of God? if they begin to see people who are different and rather than explaining how it's sinful and how God wants so much more for them, so often we say, don't be like them, don't do this, stay away from them. What does that teach our children about what God wants for them in the world? When our greatest purpose, our sole purpose is to be an ambassador of reconciliation to the world. When we tell our kids it's all about the morality and doing X, Y, and Z right, they never truly understand that what God has in store for them is so much greater than a checklist. And they go searching off on their own trying to find meaning and fulfillment because we forgot to tell them that our greatest significance is to demonstrate and be the love of God to those who are different than us. When Christ is our vision, We see the world as Christ saw the world and the world sees Christ in us. When morality is our vision, the world sees a whole bunch of kings and queens singing praises in a high palace of comfort who are unwilling to step into their domain. And we begin to look more like the king of a pagan pagan culture than the pagan culture looks like the king. So friends, today, We have one simple plea, that Christ would be our everything. I've asked Sarah to come and sing this old song, Be Thou Our Vision. As we close today, I would invite you to stand with me. And as we sing, would this song present the challenge to your hearts? Is Christ your vision? Is Christ through whom you see the world around you. Let's worship this morning.
here at NAPNAS to equip others to take their next steps in a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. In order to do that, we need to know what it is to stand true, stand firm, and love well. Dave last week walked us through what it is to lead with grace and truth. Friends, today I would challenge you, as you praise, how is your heart? Watch that your praise may not be saturated with pride, lest we become like the culture that we're trying to avoid. Friends, you can find in your bulletin all of the things that we are attempting to do here at NAPNAS to come alongside you, to come alongside others, to grow so that Christ is your everything. Bible studies, Sunday school, life groups. Hannah's leading us in an exercise program every Monday night. We have so many things that we can saturate ourselves with the community of God. Why aren't you participating? Come find out what it is to even in our giving as we give back to God in our tithes and offerings that we can do what God has in store for us to be ambassadors of reconciliation in the world he is sending us into. And so Father, we cast all of our praise unto you, but God, would you empty our hearts of any pride? God, would you bring our hearts to a place of repentance and being contrite before you so that our praise doesn't simply make us glance at you, but it leads us to gazing at you. Lord, would us praising you give us the power to step into the uncomfortable, into the world that we are trying to avoid so that others may discover what it is to be embraced by your goodness. God, challenge us, convict us, empty us, and make us more and more like your son. Make Christ our everything. Make Christ our vision. Father, we love you. Father, we praise you. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Be challenged. Watch that your hearts would not be full of pride. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 10.30 a.m. for weekly worship and community with other believers. For more information about upcoming events or ways you can connect, find us on Facebook or visit us at napnaz.org. Have a great week.